evening, ladies and gentlemen, trees and non-binaries. Adam here, founder of Fantastic Universes, with a very special episode of the Fantastic Universes podcast. We here, who love and appreciate DC Comics and all their associated media, were given a very special treat this week as of the recording of this podcast. We have finally sat down, digested, watched, and I'm going to be forward and say loved, Zack Snyder's final cut of the Justice League. The movie we should have got in, what, 2017? Mm-hmm. Has finally graced our screens. The differences and the power of overall editing has shown that you can really get an entirely different film out of what was truly intended, and the version we got was still serving a purpose, but we've given the true definitive story, and that was a very quick podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm absolutely <laughs> kidding. <laughs> absolutely kidding there is so much to unpack with this story and i can't think of anyone better than possibly one of the foremost batman experts to my knowledge going in the world but also the person who sort of fed me with batman since i was about three years old my father founder and forger of fantastic universe is steve ray how are you doing sir i'm so happy to be here and i think this is a great idea of yours to talk about this movie which like you say We've been waiting for this since, well, I've been waiting since 2015, since I knew there was a Justice League movie coming. And reading Snyder's interviews, watching him working on the film and everything he promised. Well, now we've finally seen it. (laughs) We didn't see it with the theatrical. As everyone knows, the original theatrical version that I'm going to keep saying 2017, someone in the comments or on Twitter, feel free to correct me because that's what the internet's for. Um, I'm reasonably certain that that's when it was first released. And we got a... Uh, 90-ish minute, two hours-ish, high-action, high-heart, low-resonance, confusing and disjointed film that was, uh, to quote the the Bright Minds of the Honest trailers, very, very orange, if you look at the final scene. I didn't really love or hate the original release when it happened. It was just sort of there, but that initial release and your expectations was what led to the myth of the Snyder Cut eventually just sort of lurking in and around the interwebs and those who really, really appreciate that stuff. But for those who who may not, those who saw the movie back in the day into our getting this new version now, uh, talk to us about what the actual term the Snyder Cut is and where this actual movie came from. Well, yeah, like I said, uh, Zack Snyder, of course, known for making... Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman um, had a plan for three more films, including the Justice League that we saw and, and two sequels. There was going to be a Justice League trilogy and then tying in with the other two films as a sequence of five movies together. And he frequently talked about it, had ideas, story beats, things he'd mentioned. And even when we saw the first trailer, there was a ton of stuff in that trailer that wasn't in the theatrical cut. Now, you're always going to get that with the trailer. The editor who's making the trailer wants to sell the film best way he can, and he's got all the footage to play with. But when we got the 2017 theatrical version, I am not going to put all the blame at Joss Whedon's feet, because he's got enough to deal with at the moment with uh, everything else that's going on in his life. But he was given a brief to make it funnier, make it brighter, make it more, for want of a better term, marvelly. But the real villains of this piece are Warner Brothers, who, A, bowed to some negative press when everyone said, oh, what is this a comic book movie or what? It's too dark, it's too harrowing, why can't we just have fun films? And I've said it before, I'll say it again, I love the Marvel movies, 
but they are that they're movies they're fun they're popcorn they're they're bubblegum they're happy happy joy joy rose tinted superhero movies i like ice cream but i also love a bloody steak and that's what the dc movies were man of steel was real what would happen if a godlike being lived in a metropolis and fought other godlike beings well hey that's more or less what would happen um his love of things like the donut return which is so evident in batman versus superman yeah but then tragically and it's well documented so i don't want to go into it um snyder's daughter passed away oh. and he had to step away and leave the film more or less finished apart from post-production and that's when warner brothers got joss whedon in because he'd done great things with a couple of movies including the first amazing avengers film so who better but like i said they just made a frankenstein patchwork movie whatever it said in the credits it was not a Zack snyder film but joss whedon didn't add enough that he could be put in as co-director so they just gave him a writing credit and the rest as they say is history Zack snyder's footage existed the fans demanded it and look at this we got it we Amazing. got it after a long waiting and i want to say upwards of around 20 different petitions across as many <laughs> websites yeah we truly received it but when you finally sit down and watch the film and just a bit of context it is a herculean task i will admit the film in its full runtime is about four hours mm -hmm. and i personally am someone who has ongoing but as yet undiagnosed problems with attention i like to be able to have multiple things going on at once just so that i can like not give something my undiv undivided attention because i will either trail away or zone into something else. This film absolutely had me. It also had my loving mother, who mm -hmm. who secretly loves this genre, but isn't us. Yeah. Isn't you and I. Very well said. But she had this film fully in her grasp, even from the beginning, from the very somber opening that carries on straight from Batman oh, Superman. Right. But sure enough, there's something about the universality and the strength of this film just to be able to tell the sincere story from the beginning that draws a viewer in that makes me question why they felt the need to truncate the film exactly. at all. Why did they feel the need to shorten it and just completely tamper and re-emphasize the tone? I'm so glad you brought Mum into this because I honestly expected her to lose interest an hour in and, and hate it. Because she is the kind of person who does love a happy ending, a Hollywood movie, and she does love the Marvel movies, probably even more than we do, if I'm honest. But um, from the start, I mean, let, let, let's be clear here. You and I raved about the end of Batman Superman with Luther saying, ding, 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 the bells have been rung, because that to us is the sound of a mother box. Yeah. And it has been since the Kirby era, since the 60s. And like you said, from the opening scenes with Superman dying and him screaming and that scream being felt around the world and being absorbed into the mother boxes and them going, ding, ding, the whole thing of finally calling to Steppenwolf and Darkseid, from the very opening, it just made more goddamn sense. And mum picked up on that. She says, well, hang on. So yeah, Superman dies and that wakes these things up and that's why the villains come. Why did they cut that out? And she said that throughout Multiple the times. course of the film. The shorter, more understandable, allegedly, version <laughs> from 2017. <laughs> Mum asked a thousand more questions during that one. Like, who's, okay, who's that? Why what? are they doing this? Uh, uh, so they just want to bring Superman back. Why? 
this film answered all her questions. She didn't ask us a thing. And four hours, and she's antsy like you. She's a mm. wiggler. She wants to stop and get a drink, go to the toilet, yeah. go on her phone. Yes. She was engrossed. She was engrossed so much so that we actually had a delivery, told me to go in and get it, and said, all right, all right, come back, we're going to watch the movie. I had to postpone mm-hmm. meeting with my friends for our usual yeah. recording session for our YouTube channel to get through this film, because even with my own troubles, I was able to sit through this film twice. Somewhat broken, mm-hmm. but still... It's just engrossing, which is something I haven't seen from a long and very emotionally investing film since, mm. say, the original Lord of the Rings. Wow. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. This film is epic mm. in true, that, that same sense. And I haven't, exactly what you said, mate, felt that from a movie, and we saw this at home, not even on the big screen, since Peter Jackson's original Lord of the Rings trilogy. I haven't felt anything this it has the same levels of cosmic balance. Mm-hmm. It has the same levels of grand picturesque heroes, grand picturesque set, uh, set pieces and yeah. vistas. They're very comparable, and we'll probably get to talking about like some of those comparisons a little later. But um, going back to that opening visual, that felt feeling that the loss of a hero, that ground is felt oh, yeah. across the world that mm. eventually translates to across the universe makes so much more sense that they pick up on that later that the mother boxes only woke because a threat comparable to dark side has finally left planet earth that effortless explanation of things is what lends to good storytelling which is something that you and i talk about in this room with this microphone very often with batman the animated series Mm -hmm. they effortlessly condense such detailed stories down into 20 minutes of Saturday morning cartoons, even though they're really not. So, managing that, when you take away key bits of explanation of that and key visuals that actually secretly tell a very detailed story, yes, you do really get the feeling of disconcerting Mm. confusion, especially which we really felt in the theatrical version. And you lose the heart and soul of the movie. I would say so. I would say so, because the whole heart and soul of the movie is them trying to overcome their differences... Batman specifically forgiving himself for the past transgressions against Superman and eventually coming out on top. Yeah. Said. It's a case of it's well known sometimes less is more but I do not feel in any way shape or form that there was a wasted second in it. As long as this film is I have to absolutely agree because while we were talking about Mum just a few minutes ago uh, there was one moment when Mother asked a question, and it was when you were, when we paused for a moment and you were out of the room. Mm-hmm. There was a moment when Steppenwolf made the realization and eventually found uh, the anti life equation. Yes. And before it was actually explained what it was, and he just had that vision from the mother box. Mother just sort of turned to me and said, Oh, what did he see? What, was the, what were the lines? He just found something very important, I explained. But there's an interlude, and then it's explained immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. We'll, I have a lot to say about Seven Wolf, we'll get to that in due course, but just that very effortless explanation just gives another layer of threat to oh, this. Absolutely. Otherwise, what could have been a very two-dimensional villain, mm-hmm. but still gives a great deal of credibility. But we'll get to Seven Wolf as we slowly go through and sort of cross-analyze each character in turn. Going back to the opening visual, I wanted to try and contrast that to one of the few pieces that was new but missed from the theatrical version, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the theatrical version opened 
Batman versus Parademon, which was still quite a satisfying scene from that original version. Yeah. See, as a Batman fan, I should be annoyed as hell that that didn't make it into the final cut. Mm. But we'll come into it later. What Zack Snyder does with Batman is infinitely superior. But um, the one thing about that scene, and you, your eye is incredible. I mean, video editing is, is one of your jobs. It's something you get paid to do. It's one of the things you... So you can spot when things don't work. As much as I love that scene, and it was Batman in full costume fighting a baddie, it looked so different to what came before it and came after it. It was so clearly not shot by Zack Snyder. Cinematography, the lighting, the direction, the colour, the contrast, everything about it jarred. And that's the most annoying thing. Like I said, I did not hate the theatrical cut of Justice. I was just thinking, well, it was a letdown. It wasn't what I expected and it wasn't a Zack Snyder movie. Because one thing no one can discuss or argue, I believe, is Zack Snyder's eye. His work is beautiful to look at like no one since James Cameron and Ridley Scott, in my opinion. So while I miss that scene in a way, I don't miss the way it didn't look like the rest of the film. As much like Must Have Just Reads and stuff didn't look like. There were moments in the theatrical version where they literally snapped from Zack Snyder's shots to Joss Whedon's shots and it's so disconcerting. Yeah. I'm thinking in particular yeah. of the bit where they're about to resurrect Superman mm-hmm. and we see that beautiful, almost um, Frank Miller uh, in single issue of Batman on the perch looking over the wrecked spaceship and then it cuts to him profile shot with Wonder Woman behind him. The lighting is off. Yep. The angles don't make sense. Mm-hmm. We see how short that plank is. So we saw Batman leaning on a thing, looking resplendent and brooding and mysterious into him just basically like out on a ledge as though he's owling like a kid from 2009. Yep. So the that honestly sort of summarizes the tone of it. Yeah. We go from brooding in atmosphere to high color and clarity, but still losing something. And... One of the things that I found just as jarring is the shoehorned humour in the theatrical cut. Yes. Whereas the humour in this one is organic and it's real. The whole I don't not uh, like you and the flash falling onto Wonder Woman, which is a complete clone of something we'd already done in the Avengers. Um, it just felt like he was trying to make a Marvel movie with DC characters and I don't want steak flavored ice cream. Nobody does. That doesn't. That doesn't quite work. No. Uh, I feel like Willy Wonka could pull it off, but um, yeah, well, he's the only one who could, and he's the only one who should attempt to. But in any case, yeah, the tone jumps are disconcerting. Yes, but that's what you'd expect when multiple different mm-hmm. eyes and creators handle one project. I've known probably one great piece of fiction where two very distinct very different creators handled it from start to finish and i cannot see the seams for the life of me and you know what i'm talking about good the, omens the masterpiece novel by terry pratchett and neil gaiman good omens mm-hmm. i i i read that book sort of like i pick up and just open to a random page when you guys are around mm-hmm. just to try and like see what bit it is as well of course you do <laughs> of course you do i'm related to you and I still I can't too. see the seams. And even the excellent adaptation by um, starring David Tennant and Michael Sheen was excellent. So when you get Marcel Talent looking like that, we're going to be able to 
say our pieces against this the, the actual version all day, but that's not really our intention. But still, the tone jumps are noticeable Incredible. and not great. But in terms of cross con uh, contrasting the two versions as a whole, mm -hmm. uh, film isn't a film without the characters that lead and drive the events themselves. You were touching a little bit about Batman as a as a character as a, at the beginning, mm -hmm. just seeing him going toe to toe with this paradigm quite succinctly and effectively at the beginning of this theatrical version but then as the movie sort of went on we see something that is absolutely gone from this true version which mm -hmm. i truly love and that's something that i'm calling the weary batman yes you know you can't do this forever i can barely do it now no my questionable take on ben affleck's casting as batman aside even though he is still very good there shouldn't be any indication of this weary side of Batman, but we saw that in spades in the theatrical version. What was your take on the differences between Batman in the theatrics and the Batman in Oh, so many. I do think that in the original theatrical cut, Batman becomes a cipher. He becomes like tech support. He's not an actual member of the team. He's there to provide the gadgets, and when they break, he's almost useless. And that's why I think Whedon had to write this little action scene with Batman at the beginning. What Snyder does, and, and it's from his first scene in this film, and it's completely different to, to the theatrical version, when Bruce goes to recruit Aquaman. In the original version, Batman's there, he's looking for Aquaman, he seems clueless, he just wants to recruit Aquaman, it's still not 100% clear why, yes, he wants to build a team together, but now we know why, because the mother boxes have awoken. But in that version, Bruce sees a rendering on a wall of someone who looks vaguely like Aquaman, and that's when he gets its Aquaman. In the Snyder Cut, he goes in, he's talking to Arthur, he's looking him in the eye, he knows this is Aquaman from the first second he steps in that room. B, he understands every word they're speaking in Icelandic, and he just looks at Aquaman and says, um, you know, yeah, yeah right. that's it. That's Batman the Detective, that's Batman the Warrior, that's Batman, the character we all know. He does not go into any situation half-cocked or not knowing what he's doing. So that made up for the loss of that action scene, because that was the real Batman. I'm... I wanted to try and watch the theatrical cut before recording this podcast, but we didn't. I didn't quite get the timing to the chance. But you reminding me that there was a mural on the yeah. wall of Aquaman in the theatrical version is so stupid. It's insulting. I, no, it's insulting because <laughs> Bruce Wayne, Batman, already knows who he's looking for because he saw all those files that he stole from Lex Luthor in Batman Superman. Right. So why would he need to have to go, oh, there's the third person, okay. <laughs> no, that's not how that works. No. We know that Batman is in complete control of the situation. We know that his like psychological frame is completely there. We didn't need, we the viewers didn't need to be pounded down to like that. Yeah. That was actually insulting. Yes. That's actually upset me. I completely forgot that, that part of the <laughs> theatrical version existed. Wow. Okay. Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh... How do you like, because as I was saying a few moments ago, my 
take on Ben Affleck as Batman is still visually and in terms of the, the character actor of Ben Affleck, he's still one of, if not the best on-screen Batmans I've seen in terms of in person. Mm-hmm. Personally. I still take heavy exception, and I mentioned this to David Mazouz when I met him at a few conventions a few, uh, mm-hmm. short few years ago. I still take exception to his casting because mm-hmm. in terms of being close to comic books, Batman, Superman, and Lex Luthor are all of a comparable similar age. Yeah. That is my only detraction, which mm-hmm. is why I still have immense faith in Robin Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Same. Good on you, shovel face. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I still truly love Ben Affleck's Batman, so I can see why Joss Whedon felt the need to include this aged, haggard, emotionally spent side to the character. But that's not Batman. He will feel that way on the inside. He will feel spent and haggard and emotionally exhausted, but he'll never let it show on the outside. I agree with you. That's one of the things where people who complain about Zack Snyder's Batman tell, why did you cast him 20 years, 10, 15 years older than everyone else as a world-weary 20-year veteran crime fighter? And the reason he did that was because he was hugely influenced by stuff like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, which is still, honestly, arguably the best Batman-Superman confrontation was, and one of the first to do it properly and in a way that shows that Bruce could theoretically be a physical threat against Superman. And he just thought that a young Batman who's only been doing this for a few years the way Superman has wouldn't be that level of threat. That was part of his reasoning. But that aside, Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne is perfect. As Batman is perfect. I do wish he'd maybe been... Maybe not the whole 15 years younger than they're all the same age, but let's think that Wonder Woman looks 30. She's closer to 3,000. So, you know, that's that's that. But I'm more gutted now that we've seen this film that we're not going to get Ben Affleck face-off against Deathstroke um, because that is a pairing for the ages and sadly we won't get to see it, but at least we got them together in the nightmare scene and, well... Another very famous Batman villain as well, but we'll come to that. We'll come to that sort of close to the but end. Yes, so find I'm Paul. also looking forward to Robert Pattinson's The Batman. Cannot wait. That's going to be a very interesting retelling and retake. I think visually he looks the part, mm-hmm. especially from some of the set images I've seen. So that's something to be looking forward to next year, year after, mm-hmm. something like that. And the boy can act. Yes, he can. Good old shuffle face. I will try and figure out why I keep calling him that. No, I can see why. That chin is... Shop. True enough. <laughs> Further cross comparisons of some of the key pantheons, some of the main mm. figures of the cast. Why, oh, why did they cut that excellent scene with the car, the car accident, and him and Barry Allen saving Iris oh, West? Mate, don't. Because it makes so much sense in the further credence of the film when you see stuff like that, especially considering also. The flash running so fast that the glass ripples and then the smashes was actually a snippet that was in the original trailers. Yes, and so was him saving Iris. Mm. And so was Iris's casting in all the news press, whole Iris West, and then it wasn't in the film. But then neither was Willem Dafoe's Volko. Nope. And he was in the casting and in the press and in the photographs and, the, and, and the, what? It's because they decided that no, anything more than two hours, no one will want to see it. Well, hey, did no one see the Lord of the Rings movies? Which then also got four hour cuts on Blu-ray and DVD. What? 
Wild Cuts roughly 16 years before this movie came out, before mm-hmm. nerd culture and fantasy fiction were in the amazing place that it is today. I mean, I know the studios in the business are making money and they want to get bums on seats and sell tickets, but I also find it insulting that they decide what we should watch yeah. or we might like to watch. That's what I call It's ultimately down to the fact that still compared to tenured directors, Zack Snyder is still not in the position where he can just mm-hmm. borrow several yeah. million dollars and make whatever the hell he wants. Um, studios aren't in the business of letting directors get to that big level overhead anymore. Your Ridley Scotts, your James Camerons, you, to an extent, your Michael Bay's. Those guys are around, but they're less powerful than they were. Mm-hmm. People either make movies to a franchise or make movies to a commission. They can't have the creative freedoms that uh, the older guys have now. So there is going to be that bottlenecking, which I hate, yeah. which I honestly truly do not want. And the trouble is with Zack Snyder is he is that weird hybrid of a blockbuster and an art house director. Mm. And, and that's where I think that, that, they sh- that his, their faith was shaken in him because he was telling the story he wanted to make. Because at the end of the day, people will argue this with me, but I, I don't care. The art should be from the heart of the artist and he should be there making the art to please himself but then if other people love it too job done fantastic he should not be there making art because he thinks that's what people or that's what people should see if they love it great yeah making art with the intent of people loving it that, to an, that to an extent will guarantee some level of attention some level of credibility but it will not be sincere to the artist which is exactly completely defeating the purpose a lot of mass media like that are trying to create art for the sake of bringing in viewers over the artist Mm -hmm. which as a as an artist and creator myself i find really sad i am very proud of my nothing nothing following on youtube my nothing following on twitter i'm very proud of the little corner of the internet i have where i can ramble on about uh tabletop role-playing games and my opinions on a hard-hitting superhero cinema I will talk about it because I like making that kind of art, and if people want to uh, read it and follow it with me, then I love them for it, but that is me having people all eyes on what I'm creating isn't my intention. Absolutely. And that's not really the intention of any artist, but Absolutely. that intention doesn't really make money, which is sad. Yep. But when we do get a nice like and a like-minded person comment, that makes everything. It really does. But in any case, circling back to the actual main topic, mm-hmm. seeing the Flash yeah. at his best, doing something truly heroic and full extent of his powers, there the offset within the first quarter of the film, I mm. think, we get the real context of whoa, this guy is actually powerful to be able to run so fast that he distorts time and creates electrical sparks yeah. all around him. But he's still skilled enough. To not just pluck a woman out of the air because at his speed. Oh, those bits, yes. Because at his speed, when he's watching Iris fly through the air, and honestly, who could you? How could you not fall in love with someone like that? If you were to just grab her and bring her down to the ground, she would. She would turn to goo. Whiplash. Yep. M- to more the than that. Degree, yeah. Because yeah. you saw how he decelerated and just like kicked up a bunch of tarmac under him and incinerated his shoes. It makes total logical sense to just have to slow down and just bring her to your speed and then very slowly just grab the hot dog then move it and then put it in your pocket before it just like incinerates 
So we can see he has that level of power, but he has that level of control, which yes. is exactly what we need to know what he can do later on down the film, which is why something that was the same in both versions, mm -hmm. that confrontation with Superman just after he's come back, we get the credence of, oh, Superman's that fast? Yes. Okay, now he's, now he's matched his meat, and now we should be really rooting for this character. Exactly. And losing that scene... Yes, you still get the surprise of wow, Superman's fast, but you don't get the surprise of wow, Superman's that fast. Yeah. It's a huge difference. Massive. Plus the whole character arc, you fall in love with Barry just that little bit more because of his humanity, his vulnerabilities, going for a job in a pet shop. Um, and that, again, is humour that works with the character. It's not shoehorned in, and it doesn't break the tension and the tone. Like... Um, again, this is not a bad thing against Marvel movies because I do love them, but they frequently have a really dark moment or a really action moment and then a completely inept joke in the middle of it, which totally, for me, takes me out of the, out of the scene. That's a dramatic tone called Bathos, I think. Either Bathos or Pathos. I think it's Bathos. Where they deliberately undercut a serious moment with a joke. I'm okay with it once or twice a film. The early initial Marvel movies were towing that line, and it was okay. I think a, guilt, yes. a really guilty culprit of that is the Ant-Man movies and the God and Thor: Ragnarok and the Guardians movies. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly distracting because yeah. when you get a moment like Doctor Strange finally taking out that last cultist, putting the cloak on, and popping the collar, you think, "Yeah, he's made it." And then when the cloak starts wiping away his tears, it's like, no, you've ruined the moment. Yeah. Ruined the moment. But we get none of that here. We mm. get controlled, consistent, character sincere humour. Yes. That makes him seem completely control of his powers. The spontaneous event that just happened outside, but still maintaining control. And I'd like to think he got that job in the pet shop. Yeah, totally. What, I start on Monday? Yeah, Definitely. Not Monday. This is the confidence of him. I'd I, give him the job. I'd, yeah, I would too. <laughs> I would too. Going into... A wonderful, absolute, just like almost character suicide of how he's portrayed in the theatrical version, Oof. where we see him finally confronting some bad guys, and Batman has to try and reassure him because he's talking down to someone who's been in life-threatening situations before. Because mm -hmm. we've seen, because Batman knows that we've seen the Flash in a holdup at a convenience store with mm -hmm. a guy with a gun and he was like this is fine so seeing multiple aliens moving at a fairly normalish speed shouldn't really be a thing for him and we see him sure enough take out these aliens and get the hostages out yep. fairly quickly but no he has to be the wimpy little kid saying like there are bad guys on guns i can't be here totally doesn't yeah. i don't feel like yeah. it fits not just that in the original version there's a line which still really gets on my nerves um yeah i just sort of like push people and run away um, what? That's not the Flash. No. This guy, again, he can't do enough. He actually feels bad that he's not doing more in the new version. And that is more true to the character because just look at his character from day one. What's he trying to do from the beginning? Clear his father's name. That's not a lazy person. That's not a scared person. That's not a nervous person. Yes, he's fearful. Yes, he's anxious. Because his father's in prison for a crime he didn't commit. This guy is tenacious. He works four jobs and he's trying to get his foot in the door of the job he wants to help save his father. That's not someone who pushes people around. 
No, that's uh, someone who uses the best of their ability and thinks and is adaptable and is something that you would naturally have when you have a seal set and powers. Absolutely. You can f possibly somewhat see where that attitude comes because he's probably the youngest and least experienced crime fighter in that whole cadre. Mm -hmm. But you also have to remember that he very effectively took out Captain Boomerang in five seconds of uh, the Suicide Squad movie. Yes. So I'm unsure where they felt the need to go with that, but it's fine. It's a version of a film we don't really need to see. It's more. forced humour again, which is something I cannot stand. They try to lighten the tone of a movie they think is too dark. Oh, stop it. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones, I am the Knight. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Bug, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Gogurt. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and bat them, nuts. I definitely do not fuck bats. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this, someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and video games. A complete ultra comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. For fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or dummies. Part of the Comics in Motion Podcast Network. All work and no play makes for a dull way to live, don't you agree? Join me, Adam Ray, and a very special guest each week on the Hostile Takeover, where they and I discuss their favourite game, PC, console, board game or tabletop, whatever they decide, what we will talk about. Let gaming be the way forward. Working's too much. It's time for a Hostile Takeover, coming soon to a podcast feed near you. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. 
But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, listeners. This is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. We can talk very clearly about the mishandling of characters mm. all day. We can even sort of simply say that something about the excellent Batman's Batman versus Paradigm scene, just in an essence, even though it's so satisfying to look at, it could still be somewhat of character suicide in mm-hmm. the fact that we're just painting Batman as this like brawly hammers of justice compared mm-hmm. to the opening scene we got of Batman in this true version, where he's the detective who sussed out everyone. In, in, that that seas- yeah. in that room in that seaside town but i wanted to focus a little bit about the man of the hour in that little seaside town because i can sum up how they've handled aquaman differently in both films just by one scene that i pointed out to you when we first watched it uh what were your th- i'm just gonna go to you first though quickly what were your takes about aquaman exactly the same as yours he is a king but in his eyes in name only He's a dude who just wants to live his life. But, once again, he is truly a hero. Does he have to go to the Icelandic village and help these people out who are starving? No. Does he have to help them with their crops, with their farming, with their fish? No. No. But he does. And I, it's little things like, again, a lot of people won't even notice it, but the music changes, the way they've handled the score and the soundtrack of this just to me, adds to the characters and the depth of character of each and every one of them. The scene where he's walking into the sea... Is exactly what I wanted to talk about? Oh, well, there you go. We both, both, both saw it. Just the choice of music there, rather than having, oh, Rocky, 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 look at me, I am like king of the sea, I'm badass. Uh, oh, Changing I... it, well, to, to that excellent, like, I song a about a king, yeah. Beautiful. And yep. there's things like that that make that film better and make you understand that this is a guy who gets the character. Yeah, we got we went from the tortured, somewhat undecided man of, man of two worlds yeah. ownership of none, uh, divided 
broken man who probably has a drinking problem. Yeah. Yeah. Into the theatrical version where I'll quote the genius of the honest trailers here, Bro Sidon, King of the Brotion. <laughs> that because did. Yeah, because that's the, that's the original version. That was what that was how they portrayed him in the theatrical cut. Because so we had him just be like, oh yeah, he just saved a guy from the ship. Uh, he rocks. He's drinking. He's just nicking whiskey right out of the bottle. He's he's badass. But then we get this version of just like, oh. Because there was a line. I, this is why I wanted to watch the theatrical side by side before recording this. The scene where he saves the sailor off of the ship in the. Um, and just brings him back into the seaside town. Which, again, he didn't really he have didn't to do. He didn't have to do that. I'm pretty sure the line that was in the Snyder Cut where he says, You should tell him to respect the storm yes. next time. I'm pretty sure that wasn't in the theatrical. I don't believe it was. He's just like, he comes in, brings a guy down, whiskey, it's on him. Just takes any emotion out of it. Yeah. Because, sure, there's a part of Aquaman that still feels like, oh, this guy's an idiot. Why would he go out on his ship in the middle of a storm mm -hmm. on his own? But he still saves him anyway, which makes him seem all the more heroic. And then when Spot he walks on. out into the waves and the wind, drinking, drinking his troubles away, you feel like he's still vulnerable, yeah. even though he's an immensely powerful being. Yeah. But no, we get none of that layered emotional depth in here. We are just instead left with Broside and King of the Broche. Yeah, absolutely. He is world-weary, and you feel the weight of his shoulders in this one, whereas the first one makes him look carefree, like, yeah, look at me. And... I don't know either. I don't know. Um, we can sum up how well Wonder Woman's recharacterizing and reframing is, because in this version... Um, Ratner's production company's not involved, so we don't get that unnecessary gratuitous shot of her butt when they're getting off the plane. Yep. So, Ugh. yeah, we can sum that up quite well. The extended scenes with uh, the temple in Themyscira oh, was absolutely God, a delight. Because we suddenly get an emotional kick in the gut when we see that temple and the hundreds of other Amazons sink into the ocean, mm -hmm. which wasn't in the theatrical. Mm -hmm. So we just feel the sacrifice of hundreds of stellar warriors yeah. go down in flames, amounting to next to nothing because the bad guys bad guys escaped. Yep. Just being able to handle those storied characters from myth and modern comics with a great deal of extra respect, as opposed to them being just warrior, fodder. warrior women cannon fodder. Yeah, which is definitely a nice bit of respect. But uh, yeah, Wonder Woman in the Amazons for you. Again, they were just done properly. The whole thing with, clearly, and I didn't get this at all in the original version, how much Diana misses the Mascara mm. and her mother. And the same way, oh, bring my daughter back to me. Like, I've really lost hundreds of my sisters. I don't want to lose my daughter too, but this threat is so great. And it's like, it doesn't need exposition or reams of dialogue to explain it. It's the way she prays to that arrow and shoots it. Diana's reaction when she sees it on TV and her face at the visage of Darkseid on that mural in that underground temple. And then you get that whole scene thousands of years in the past, which again, bringing in the Greek gods to that battle what the why was that cut we certainly what saw the, the we only saw the old god sort of in the backdrop of that scene in that situation but seeing close-ups of zeus there of 
Theotius's yeah. Ares just looking younger and resplendent before the war and the struggles yeah. that led to the Wonder Woman movie makes total sense and it's just so satisfying. We got extra shots of that unnamed Green Lantern. Yes. Which was also very nice and something that I am desperate for them to try and do because I don't hate the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern I movie, don't but it's but it's Again, it's a it's a it's very, steak flavored ice cream, isn't it? Yeah. It's trying to be lots of different things but not working out well at any of them. But it's still fun and I will forgive it. Yeah. So them being able to handle and expand scenes that really needed the expansion just yes. is just so incredibly satisfying then we circle around to a character that really matters to me something for an extended project that i can't really speak on right now um the wonderful depth and layered and vulnerability and the arc because the one the character that goes through the biggest character arc across this film for me is Victor Stone cyborg he's the heart of the movie yeah he's the true beating heart of the movie just briefly, just to finish off with, because I do think we should tie in Flash and Wonder Woman. The fact that they didn't have to resort to Barry falling on her boobs for humour or for connectivity or for anything else, again, speaks mm. volumes. But Victor, again, it was in the trailer, the bit with him playing football. Yep. And it's essential because you finally get to see the man he was before he was cyborg so you get to feel his pain and his loss and that of his father who's lost his wife and to all intents and purposes his son so when you get the football scene and lifted straight out of the pages of the comics him scoring that touchdown pride joy his mother's glee at her son's triumph but then looking at that empty chair where his dad should be the layers of depth and emotion it gives Victor Stone, who I think is A, one of the most tragic characters in comics, but B, also one of the most inspirational, all of that's there on screen to see in this film. All of that's there on screen to see in uh, the period of about two or three minutes. Yeah. feels entirely natural. None of it's forced totally. or shoehorned onto the viewer, but we still feel it, and we feel the suddenness and the tragedy of the snap and his family's gone shock mm. of everything we feel the suddenness of miles dyson i mean silas stone <laughs> is, is it me or is that character is he's that so badly typecast and he's such a wonderful actor i agree with you but he when you do something well yeah we the but again a wonderful tenured actor to be able to put that sincere reaction and we see the composite of him putting Cyborg together as we're layered and explained with the extent of Cyborg's powers and skills, as opposed to the very sort of throwaway, oh, look, he can do holograms and he's seeing Wonder Woman Googling him that we get, just to sort of mm -hmm. condense down that moment. We get the real sense that he is vulnerable, he is damaged, but he has possession of these powers, but is choosing to do the bare minimum and be almost a guardian guardian angel to yeah. that one woman who's down on her luck yeah. which I thought was a wonderful heartfelt and it's sad that it's necessary kind of thing for the working class yes. in America absolutely and um, I honestly do believe as well that he literally just took a few cents here a dollar there from the richest people in the world who'd never miss it to help this one woman who really needed it I mean it's either that or he absolutely screwed the economy and just moved the <laughs> and just and just did a Mr. Robot and moved the decimal point over 
<laughs> nah, I think he did it the first way, just the, the proper way. But do you not feel as well? And this is again something Mum noticed. She goes, "Well, okay, so that's why he had to be rebuilt. He was in a fatal car crash, which killed his mum and wrecked half his body. Well, duh. Why did they cut that out again? Yeah. Exactly. Because in the end, because at the end of Batman Superman, we just see Silas Stone's um, scientific recordings and test notes of." the mangled wreck of what was Victor and then all of the text suddenly extruding across his body. How did he get there? Yeah. Why Why did he get there? Why should we care? Nope, you don't need to know. He's yeah. just cyborg now. Yeah. That's it. That's enough. Oh, oh, he's cool. He's just half man, half robot, which is just, like, you know, what you want to watch. Yeah. How did that happen? Obviously, I know, because uh, I read the comics and while this origin is slightly different, it's more realistic. Um, but the fact that... So, yeah, you've got this person there who's like... Half an arm, no arm, and and a torso, and half a face. Um, so what did you have a really hung, hungry dog, or you know, did you feed your, your your son to a tyrannosaurus? What the actual f? And hey, there's an answer. We're given an answer, and it gives the character so much more emotional investment Absolutely. because we feel his loss and we feel the pain and the suddenness of this tragedy that this kid was a genius and a star and a star athlete he could mm -hmm. have gone anywhere and done anything yeah. but it was all snatched out from under him and we see him trying to come to terms with that but we also feel his power and the gravity of what he does and the heart the beating heart of the movie eventually goes on to lead the charge in trying to get Batman's tech working we see him being invested and still doing the right thing at the heavy loss and sacrifice of his father mm -hmm. We see him eventually taking the ultimate plunge to try and eventually overcome the source of evil there, the unity of the Mother Box is coming yep. together, and just the symbolism of him being himself, and then eventually him being the cyborg self in that cybernetic projection that he always goes to. Yes. Seeing the perfect vision of the family he can no longer have as the unity, and him finally admitting, I'm not broken. I, and him oh, taking ownership of his own identity. I cried like a tiny child. Yeah. This is so beautiful and so poignant. And just true growth of a character yeah. that you don't really get because they had to just sort of shoehorn in his his tagline yeah. from back when he was in an anime. Yeah, absolutely. While I liked the Booyah moment, it was completely unnecessary. It was fan lip service. It, it's that simple. But what we get of Cyborg in this film is a Cyborg... It, Hugely intelligent human being. Cyborg, a hugely caring human being. And Cyborg, a true blue, 100% hero. You get none of that in, in the theatrical at all. The fact that in a logical, brilliantly told way, he comes to terms with the horror that is his life, which at the beginning of the film, he is disgusted at himself. And angry at his father, possibly for, for letting him live. But by the end of the film, he realises that, hey, like I helped my friend by fixing her grades a little bit, I can help people. Okay, I'm not, I don't look like what I used to, but in many ways, even though I'm less, I'm more. I've still got my heart, I've still got my soul, I still care about this place, and hey, then that means I'm still me. And that's a beautiful story. And to go from what you thought was monstrous, but using yeah. that change to do more good in the world than yeah. what there was yesterday, that is probably my personal definition of heroism. 
do you not think that this man has got more reason to become a villain than just about anyone else in comics? And in and terms of and in terms of what he could do, his his possibilities as a villain are truly terrifying and almost unstoppable. Yeah, almost unstoppable. So his true heart is probably more pure than Superman's in cases. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I say say so say as much in in, in a show we did about Vic Stern about about Cyborg. I love this character, and this film did it. Pardon the pun, did him justice. Yep, it truly did, and grateful for it with those key protagonists sort of highlighted we then eventually come to the the tipping point in the narrative where superman is eventually brought back in the same way that we saw in the theatrical cut but they make the extra effort to explain that idealistically and philosophically they need his backing and they need someone of his comparable power level we don't get any of that discussion here. We just get, nope. we need to bring him back. You sure? Yes, I think it's a bad idea. Okay, but we're still going to do it. That's yeah. what the conversation amounts to. That's more or less the exact conversation. But in this as well, not, not just that, we actually fully understand a little bit more because of how they do it and how they explain the way they return him, the awesome power of the mother boxes and the power of life itself. And that underlines even further why Darkseid's attempt to discover the anti-life is that much more terrifying. Yeah, and that's something that could be plugged into the mother boxes to level life instantly without any chance of repair in a truly terrifying way, which puts that looming threat on the edge of the universe, making them that more terrifying. Oh, but wait, we weren't aware that he was really a thing anymore as compared to the theatrical anyway. Yeah. But still, Superman eventually is brought back and has the light tussle with the Justice League, as we do. But we are rewarded to see that it is actually Henry Cavill, not 99% of Henry Cavill and God, Dodgy Face. God, don't even get me started on Moustache Gate, mate. Seriously, <laughs> why? Uh, it's because I had heard about it going into the theatrical release on in the cinema. So I knew it was there, but I was going to try my best to just sort of like watch the movie and let it be. Impossibly. It, it, it was so bad. Did you- it was so bad but no we get the original footage here so any of the reshooting of that area was not necessary because they only needed to re-render his mouth back onto his mouth for the re-recorded lines that uh, Joss Whedon written mm. which made things very disconcerting but then again it can't be any more disconcerting than him swooping in at the end of the day in a very heavily recolored suit Again, I'm so glad you noticed it. That costume just looked unnatural. Now I know why, because it was the black costume. It wasn't the blue costume he was wearing. I mean, I have very little bad to say about this film, but one of the things I possibly would have just tweaked is that final shot when he's back in Metropolis and he rips his shirt open. There I would have liked to have seen the red and blue again, but I'm not going to cry about it. I think that black suit somewhat represents the it's Superman, but he's come back from the other side and he's left a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. This is the version that could eventually go a little bit sinister according to the yeah, visions, of the future, apo- yeah. visions of the Apocalypse World. Um, my own thoughts of the Apocalypse World will come later on in this podcast. But uh, yeah, they handled him truly and properly here, which is yeah. I think we, something I think we needed. And with less silly exposition and with just 
pure beautiful storytelling ring for example um the fact that in the original version bruce wayne has to bring out the big guns and the big guns is lois oh there's a nice twist i thought you were going to get massive weapons out yawn whereas throughout this film from the beginning where we see lois she's a woman who's still in mourning she's a woman who's still in pain and anyone who suffered a loss can see that in her she doesn't say a word but the quality of her acting, the quality of her body language speaks volumes. And the way that she literally just goes out to his memorial every single morning, the line that she hasn't been back to work, make her being there when Superman returns much more realistic, much more organic and much more heartfelt. Yeah. Why did, you know, again, I changes that were made just for the sake of making changes, I think. That humanizes Superman because she, it's seeing her out of coincidence now, not out of some grandiose plan that wakes his memories, wakes his heart and soul. And with little lines, with little things like him standing at the window at the Ken Farm, oh, mum loved it. I loved it. So did I. I mean, God damn it, that's beautiful. Yeah. And that shows him waking up and becoming the the real Superman again. Oh, dude. <laughs> Glad you circled around to Lois Lane because I also wanted to talk about Lois Lane and Martha Kent sort of in conjunction. Yes. Because in this version, we actually see them as a grieving mother and a, yeah. gr- and a grie- I'm actually going to say grieving widow here. Absolutely. emotionally, they were together, together. Absolutely. There's a scene in a side room at the Daily Planet where they just sort of talk and it's like, oh, are you sad? Yeah, a little bit. That's that's how that scene read to me, because that's a totally realistic way for two women to have lost a very important person in their life who is also one of the most important people in the world. Yes, that's exactly how they'd react. Oh dear, dear indeed. But sure enough, we get to see them mourning and grieving and the weight of everything, and we and then again we actually feel the weight of it on Martha's side when we see that the farm is being repossessed. Yes. The last shred of something that's actually grinding her to the earth, the last bond yep. is taken away from her as well. So we between feel, her husband and her son, yeah, go on. So we really feel the mounting dread and almost Grecian tragedy there from the beginning of the movie. Yes. So we actually feel for these characters as opposed to them their feelings being acknowledged but largely glossed over in the theatrical cut. Yeah. Totally. Now a character that was handled in a very peculiar way has been reframed and redone to great effect in this version. And it's not something we've, we've, we've talked about this movie a lot, mm-hmm. away from the microphone. But we've not talked about this character yet, and I have immense things to say about Steppenwolf. Okay, go for it. I have immense things to say I'm about Steppenwolf. I'm intrigued. First and foremost, I cannot look at the version that was re- reanimated and re-rendered in the theatrical version anymore. I think mm-hmm. the original version just looks stupid. Because <laughs> I watched the. Because as much as I tried to, the only thing I was able to get watched was the Honest trailer for Justice League yep. by Screen Junkies. And I've mentioned them a couple of times on podcasts. I think they are evil geniuses and they really know how to sum things up. But when you look at them side by side, they yep. are very different character yep. models. The Steppenwolf of the Snyder Cut is immensely bulky. Those horns are actually part of his head and his physiology, and the like Decepticon esque yep. flickering panels. Living armor. Living armor with the little spider things. Mm. 
makes total sense compared to the vaguely grey, blocky warrior with the dumb Viking helmet. I feel like they wanted to try and like trim him down to make him look a bit more humanoid and mm -hmm. a bit more realistic, but I don't want realistic in my giant alien overlords. Absolutely. Not just that. I mean, in all fairness, the version from Theatrical Cut is slightly more like the original Steppenwolf from the comics. Not what he became eventually, but the original. So I sort of see it. But the ultimate cut... Batman versus Superman. You see Steppenwolf in Superman's ship, mm -hmm. emerging from the depths, and it's the Steppenwolf we get in the Snyder Cut. Mm -hmm. So what the hell happened to him between the end of Batman versus Superman and Joss Whedon's original theatrical cut of Justice League? Because they are not the same character. No, it's just um, what. Maybe it's like all of those people who saw Force Awakens was just like, oh, it's not going to be a giant, a giant Sith Lord. That'd be cool. Oh, he's just yep. like seven foot tall. That's another uh, kettle of fish that I don't want to set to no, boil right no, now. That's a completely different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially worth doing, but uh, I think... Uh, I think discourse, hey, I could uh, talk Star Wars all day, you know I could. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, when we compare then the motivations and the actions of Steppenwolf oh, yeah. between the two films... Oh, yeah. It's amazing how we went from the theatrical cut of vague motivations, fairly bland conqueror, saying um, PlayStation 2 villain level dialogue. Mm -hmm. They're all too weak to see the truth. He is destined for conquer. Such generic stuff. Yep. Compared to him somewhat morally conflicted mm -hmm. talking about some sort of grand betrayal against Darkseid yep. his genuine excitement about finding anti-life yep. and desperate to try and find Darkseid's approval again and him saying Darkseid will come here just like yep. actual excitement and his intention to actually want to succeed they have turned what was an actually almost sympathetic interesting but still very muscle bound physical villain into someone interesting then just rip that heart right out by the time they got to the theatrical yeah literally couldn't put it better myself they in in the original version he's a two-dimensional cardboard cutout baddie here he's a character yes. it's that simple he is a character with an arc with a story with heart with emotion trying to desperately get back in the graces of his nephew and his overlord Dude, again, why cut it? Uh, I, I think the formula goes with, especially with the Marvel movies, they're very guilty of this. Yes, their villains are. Their villains are not great. And the ones that are great either are unkillable, Loki, or get mm -hmm. killed off to progress the actual villain in the form of Claw from Black Panther. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to try and like put the focus back onto the heroes at the expense of the villain despite there being absolutely no need to do so. Yep. Which is a huge problem, especially considering that in the true, the in the true Snyder version, he's not the only villain. We absolutely. get to see the actual... We actually get to see Apocalypse, mm -hmm. the, the, the war world. We get to see the actual big ups there as well in the form of Dassard and Darkseid. Yep. And Granny Goodness, which blew my freaking mind. <laughs> I was actually going to ask, because I'm going to say I have very little working knowledge. I presume that's that was the human figure? The lady with the white hair, yes. yes. Oof. She's a scary woman. Yeah, I'm certain that'll be exciting to see if 
uh, Warner Brothers come to their senses and reinstate this man in whatever stories he wished to tell. Well, we have this here because Tom King, the legendary comics writer, and Ava DuVernay, the legendary movie maker, are in the process of making a fourth world um, movie. Oh, wow. A New Gods movie is actually happening. It's it's real. So you can't have a fourth world movie without Darkseid, Dessard, and Granny Goodness. Whether they'll use this iteration, and now that we've seen them, I think it's silly not to, remains to be seen, but that is coming. With that said, in terms of this iteration and the versions we've seen, I would say they are next to comics perfect. Oh my god. I'm, I'm so happy. Truly it's happy. all I can say is I am so happy. Even down to the, the presence that they had over what I'm going to call uh, molten metal Skype. Yep. Um, <laughs> oh, what a great way of communicating. Love yeah. that. Well, I use... Um, I my house down, yeah. but I'd like it. No, I use water Skype in my Dungeons & Dragons games, which works pretty well. You need a, <laughs> you need a speaking stone for it, but it's pretty effective. No, actually, yeah. Anyway, um, we get the actual sense that they are a real threat and they are someone to be feared, but unlike... The 17 or 18 million movies that it took for Marvel to finally get around to bringing in their world-ending big bad, we're we're seeing him immediately as a th- as a threat yeah. and as a being of agency that is going out there to eventually do things himself. Who came first? Of Darkseid and Thanos. Oh, Darkseid. Good. Yeah. Um, real villains with motivations are so interesting and mm-hmm. something I think that. This kind of storytelling sorely needs. Well, plus the fact it makes you give a shit, doesn't it? Yeah. If you've just got a villain who's a cardboard car, you think, oh, just die already. Yeah. When you get a villain with an actual personality and a reason for doing what they're doing, it makes an A, a much more credible threat, and B, not just someone you just want to see die for the hell of it. I mean, some villains you just think, oh, you're going to die. Oh, you're going to die. Oh, you just, oh, I hate you. But this guy, you think, oh, phew. yes, you're a horrible piece of work. Yes, you are probably going to die a horrible death, but. I can sort of get, get why you're, you're doing, doing what you're doing. doing. And we get the investment from it, and it's a rewarding thing to see, especially with what could very easily have been a cookie cutter, blah, I've got yeah. a big axe, I'm going to chop you down sort of deal. We get an investment and we follow along with his plans, and we eventually see them through over the course of the film. Yeah. Plus the fact, I mean, I have to say this about Steppenwolf. Oh, God. In the theatrical cut, He's basically eaten by his parademons because he gets scared of Superman. So why do you even have the Justice League? In this version, he is defeated by the Justice League working Working as as a team. team, Which again, doesn't happen in a theatrical. My God, I mean, this is just storytelling 101, isn't it? Yeah. And I want to actually also emphasise the defeat of the bad guy, victory of the good guys as the team effort. Yeah. More specifically, I want to emphasize the fact that the victory of the heroes is put down onto the two newest, least experienced heroes Absolutely. out of the lot of them. Well because spotted. we see their first efforts actually fail. Yes. We see the unity happen and the world get destroyed, but we see the first instance of what is like flashpoint level yeah. cosmic warping oh, yes. of the flash running through time. We see him run backwards in time to a point just before the Unity comes in, comes online and eventually charging Cyborg in. And as we talked about earlier when we highlighted Cyborg, we see him 
have the emotional fortitude to be able to break the unity up before calling in on Superman for the physical strength needed to pull apart the boxes. Absolutely. We get none of that combined effort here. We don't see Batman controlling the surroundings, Flash charging Cyborg to take apart the unity, Superman to take apart the unity, while Wonder Woman and Aquaman use their martial skill to take out these parademons. No. It's just, hey, we'll defeat the bad guy. Yeah. Just pull the boxes apart because it's easy. Yep. Mate, I could not agree more. This is a true league. Yes. This is a true team and a true team effort. From the bit where, like I said before, Batman in the original cut is a cipher and he's there as tech support. And in the main battles, he's almost useless. Here... He's out there fighting parademons one-on-one, shooting them out of the ground, keeping the troops that are inside the fortress safe from being bundled by these horrible flying insects. Batman is a part of the team, and he's the one who's coordinated the whole strategy. He's the one who said, destroy the tower, the force field will go down. He's the one who's planned it all, which is, again, Batman. That's what Batman does. He's the strategist who gets the ball rolling while the rest of the team, because they are more muscle than he is, and he knows that, he's got to be the nerve centre, they've got to be the limbs. And that was clearly shown in this film, whereas it did not exist in the first one. Again, to the point where the villain isn't actually even defeated by the heroes. Even further still, I would say that we see Batman as the nerve centre coordinating the heroes, because in the original version... Aquaman very rightly asks, so this was your big plan to get yourself killed? Because yep. he gave himself a death wish as a way to sort of get over the guilt he felt for causing Superman's death. But even so, Batman would have sort of compartmentalised and moved on from that so that he could eventually go on and help the team out as properly as he possibly could. Oh yeah, this is a Batman who wants to live again. And never is it clearer, again, in one of my favourite lines, one of my favourite scenes where he's getting on the Flying Fortress with the League, Alfred's saying, well, why are you doing this? Just sort of, faith, Alfred. Faith. faith. His soul is back. I mean, he was broken by the death of Robin, which we do get alluded to again at the end of this film. But Superman's sacrifice, where he was so blinkered, he just saw a being of immense power that was a possible threat to his world because he lost people in the Battle of Metropolis. He was blinded by rage and anger from both those events. And here we see, well, damn it, yes, he was a man just like I am. And that Martha scene gets ridiculed to death. I, I'm sorry, I will defend it to my dying day. Because that's when you realise, hang on, he might be a super powerful alien, but Jesus, he had a mother like I did. And my God, they even shared a name. Um, that's when you realise this is a super powerful being, but he's as much a man as I am and possibly a greater hero than I am. Because... Let's be honest, we've said it a thousand times, it's a point of discussion among us comics nerds throughout the world. Who, honestly, with the level of power Superman has, would take the path that Superman did? Bollocks. They'd be <laughs> world-beating villains, they'd rule the place, have all the money in the world, all the women in the world, and do whatever the hell they like. The fact that Superman doesn't do that makes him the world's greatest hero, as he's always been portrayed. And that is evident in this film and that is the reason they bring him back which is never properly clarified or discussed in the theatrical it's handled perfectly and it gives us the credence to show where we can actually rely on this hero and that's what makes him truly heroic because he keeps those heroic ideals in the face of his immense godlike power yeah 
and we're really rewarded with that in this film. Totally. With all that said and done, the heroics are set. We are still well in the midst of a superhero film. And what would superhero yeah. media be without them setting up sequels for other, with other villains oh. for them to defeat? Or what we would have hoped. Yeah. Why, oh why, did they rewrite the dialogue for that scene on the boat between Deathstroke and Lex Luthor? Again, mate, this time we had a league of our own. Oh my, we, seriously, did a 12-year-old write that dialogue? Sounds like it. Honestly, it really sounds like it. Like, I know there's an Injustice League and a Legion of Doom, whatever else, but come on. I mean, I know they do want to have a wider audience, but if anything's proved it, the Joker movie, The Hoking Phoenix, showed that there is a market for an R-rated comic book movie. I mean, yeah, Deadpool did that too, but in a completely different way with stupid childish yeah. R-rated, which is great fun. Loved every second of it. Entertaining, but hey. Why can't a superhero film be deep, emotional, literal? I mean, it's like literal. It's like, it's like grand, epic, heroic, um, Greek god literature and you said it there's the levels of fantasy the, the battle thousands of years ago building that history of the earth and the Amazons and the Atlanteans and, and the fourth world and apocalypse oh my god it's just magic and they had to whittle it down to two hours of pure comic book cheese which is what most people hate comic books for in the first place they felt that they had to they had something in their hands a film in their hands that wasn't fitting what the market tone was but they thought it would be easier to play safe as opposed to be ambitious and to create something new and well um that really backfired didn't it unfortunately yes because people clamored for the true film got the true film eventually probably too late but still got the true film and have been truly blown away by it because the only distraction i've heard about this film is that it's too long but Ugh. i'm sorry no it's God. not there are no extraneous scenes in this film compared to the theatrical cut that put in a very endearing russian family living on the border of chernobyl yeah re think about that. <laughs> and somewhat un uh. unnecessary character uh. character killing jokes and the other detractor I've heard is that exactly 10% of the film is in slow motion. Wow, you must be really interesting to sit there and count how long all the slow-mo is. Yeah. <sighs> slow-mo has been used in films almost forever. And I'm sorry, all right, 10% of the film is slow-mo, okay. Has anyone watched a John Woo movie? <laughs> and he's regarded as one of the finest action directors of all time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, again... Again, this is just opinion, but believe it or like, I, I will just not agree with you. The slow-mo in this film was not overused. It helped tell the story, helped show the character, it helped in every way possible. Plus the fact, as with mostly everything this team of filmmakers does, wicked. <laughs> That's the reasons for having it. Yep, and they are reasons in and of themselves. And when they are used this well, you can hate it. Brilliant, well said. And as for the length of the film, okay, right. So um, there are people, and I've known them all my life, who said, well, listen, if you can't tell a story in, in 90 minutes, then you I call bullshit. Because there have been three-hour, four-hour picks from as far back as Ben-Hur. Sorry, no. Sometimes when you've got a particularly 
a myriad of characters, not just one central character. You cannot tell their story adequately in 90 minutes. Do people say that, let's look at a popular piece of, of, of uh, popular culture, a Stephen King novel, two, 300 pages. That's the norm, right? So is War and Peace a failure? <laughs> uh, I think not. You know, so why should a four-hour movie be a failure? Is um, Watchmen a failure because it needed 12 issues to tell these character stories? Is any comic that's more than 20 pages that can't tell a story in 20 pages a failure? No. So a four-hour movie was necessary, and my God, it did not feel like It really didn't feel like four hours. It engrossed me and my mother, who both of us have somewhat yeah. trouble of like maintaining the plot and the grip on things. I say as a point of personal pride that I don't watch serial television anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm much too invested in the writing I do and the games I play of an evening to stay invested in like serial narratives. But when it's told that well, that paced in such a way that, that there's always relevant stuff going on, that unpacking the detailed emotional depths of these characters, yes, indeed. there's nothing that could really make it feel like it was longer than it actually was. And cutting at this film would really take away the essence, but we all know that that's what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I would not shave a second of this. Nah. I would not shave a second of With all that said, we come to the true ending and the other vision of the apocalypse world. Mm -hmm. Personally, this is a, a section I could shave off of this film, but it's a version of, vision I still love. See, I wouldn't take it off because, again, it's the story Snyder wanted to tell and it gives us a hint of what could have happened. While that's torturous to some, I think it's lovely, but I possibly would have had it as a post-credit. It is a little bit jarring tacked on to the end of the movie proper. Um, but, again, seeing Deathstroke now... Hell bent on destroying Batman, particularly when he finds out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Just seeing him side by side with Batman, I just thought, what the hell? How did that happen? Yeah. That just got me like thinking, I need these sequels. And I'm never going to get them. But again, simple, brilliant storytelling. To be able to go from that emotional, yeah. absolute crux of the matter yeah. is masterfully done. And it's really rewarding to see that turnaround. And yeah would make those stories really interesting to tell it's not something i would particularly expect to see i would i would have expected more traditional closer to the narratives um ongoing stories of the comic books themselves but these are still stories that are interesting enough to explore and when they're handled that well okay they do have my attention yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely um obviously there, there's a huge elephant in the room because a lot of people so vocal and so adamant and so hateful of what um, Jared Leto did in the Suicide Squad movie, which I'm not one of them. I actually thought his Joker was great. I actually thought in terms of comic book accuracy, the look was completely not totally. He, he's never looked like that, but it was an intriguing take. But his personality, his unhingedness, his more than bipolar mood swings, that to me was pure Joker. And again, I loved the way he handled the character in this nightmare sequence. What's the fact he faced Batman? Oh, yeah. God. That's all I really wanted to see. I wanted to see an exchange between Ben Affleck's Batman and Jared Leto's Joker. And we 
Oh, B in the first initial and then J in the first initial. That's interesting. Mm. Um, but still, we really got that exchange, and it was more satisfying than I expected because we actually also get to see just how through the ringer this Batman of the future truly is, where he feels the exactly. need to, where he feels the need to cross that line and kill people, and he would be satisfied enough to be able to eventually do that with this Joker. We're like, okay, what happened? What didn't happen? It would still be a story worth exploring. It's not necessarily a story I would have asked for, mm. but it's still a story that would be interesting. Not just that. What happened with Batman is teaming, not just with freaking Deathstroke, but with Joker. The when the what? world when the world turns upside down, sometimes your best enemies are your best friends. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy. Is the other guy that's wearing a swap vest and a bunch of uh, old police badges that he probably found in the wasteland. <laughs> Absolutely. But still, that sudden expectation of what a future could be is a very scary thing. And yes. we're getting that future probably beamed to him by some psychic from the future. Probably, maybe, I don't know. We don't know. But whether the fact that... Obviously, Cyborg had a vision um, when he was about to bring Superman back. Um... Barry's been sent through time, which we saw in Batman vs. Superman, to prevent this future. But Batman's the one having these nightmares. And again, I'd love to have seen that explored more and explained, which was going to happen, but now isn't. So, hey-ho. But listen, a year or two ago, we said we'd never see the Snyder Cut. So I'm never going to say never. If we don't, sad. If we do, wicked. Before we end things off, we had the opportunity to look into a potential late entry into the Justice League as well. Again, for me, as an in interminable, forever, eternal comic book nerd, if you know the history of the characters, until the New 52, when they really rewrote history, which, again, I kind of like bits of, but hated lots of bits of, Martian Manhunter was an integral part and a founding member of not just the original Justice League, but of every iteration of the Justice League. So the fact that we got to see him and the added surprise, well, not a surprise to people who followed the making of the film, we knew it was coming, but the added surprise that he's been in Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman as the general is just like, oh, brilliant clever fantastic he's guarding the world but as a soldier as a human being but now he feels confident enough due to superman batman and the justice league emerging to be himself and again what a fantastic message to anyone out there in the world of which we count ourselves who sometimes felt like we can't be ourselves we are odd we're different we're nerds we're geeks whatever else and just that little thing to me, speaks volumes. It really does, and it was handled well with a with a character actor with a great gravitas behind yes. his voice, and the look of him is oh, tr just so truly good. comics, comic sincere, but also still new. somewhat new and realistic. Yeah. I'm very pleasantly surprised to have seen him, and it makes total sense for him to have been here. I looked, I would look forward to seeing more of him because I feel like. Uh, the White Martians would always be a oh, great threat wow, to yes. potentially bring in and for him to have a personal stake in because I know that that's my first uh, vision of the Justice League was uh, seeing that original team go up against those guys. Yes, indeed. 
Graham Morrison's role. It would be a really rewarding thing to see, but I'm glad we've got it in one form or another. Let's just say that while Zack Snyder directing films, making films for DC is probably not going to happen, let's take heart in this. And this is something I discussed with the Comics in Motion. The, the Snyderverse may no longer be a thing, but the DC Extended Universe really is because we still have films with Jason Momoa. We still have films with Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. We are getting Flash film, which now I want even more because of the ways power levels has been explained, of the time travel theory, of the fact of him wanting to save his father and the possibility of seeing a version of Flashpoint on screen. Those three characters are the characters from these three movies. So their stories will continue. So in some aspect, whoever does come on board, if we are going to get more Justice League films, if they even take a little bit of inspiration from what we were going to get with Snyder's movies, we're still going to get some fantastic films. So I'm just going to take the heart of that, that those characters are still around, more adventures, more great stories still coming. As long as we hold faith that the version of the characters that we've seen are still being handled by great teams yeah. and the excellent acting talent of Gal Gadot, Jason Momoa and Ezra Miller, then yeah, I have utmost faith that we'll see these characters again on the screens near us very soon indeed. Absolutely. Very exciting stuff. And with that said, the miracle and the unexpected surprise of the Snyder Cut has finally landed on our shelves, on our hard drives, and in our hearts forever. Absolutely. And we are truly rewarded to get it. But this special episode of the Fantastic Universe podcast has summed up one simple thing. Truly good artists need to be left alone to make the stories they want to make. And with all that said, we are going to depart with our capes flying in the breeze, flying off into the sunset, much like <laughs> the Martian Manhunter did. But before we go, you need to know more about our dulcet tones. So, Steve, father, human, where can the fine people of the internet find you, your musings, your writings, and your workings? Dulcet tones. Um, with your dulcet tones, uh, every week doing the I Am The Night podcast, talking about the legendary, wonderful, magnificent Batman the Animated Series. Every week on Superheroes for Dummies with my friends Paul and Dan, uh, which you beautifully save ourselves from when you edit and mix that show, you mm -hmm. absolute legend. Talking about the characters you want us to talk about, answering the questions you want answered about those characters. And weekly on the DC Comics News Podcast, where we talk everything DC movies, TV streaming, games, comics, media, whatever else is out there across multiple different networks. For my written work, just type Steve J. Ray or Fantastic Universes into your search engine of choice to read all my news, reviews, and interviews across three wonderful websites. But I like to talk. Yeah. You may have noticed. Talk to me, please, at Twitter, at Elstevo, at E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. Games Master, Mix Master, Vision Mixer, Mastermind, Master Planner. Where can the multiverse find I do master quite a few things by the looks of it. For Elsa Tones, I'm not as quite as active as my father, I would say. I do very infrequently host the Hostile Takeover, a gaming podcast where a friend and I discuss their favourite game and why they love it. Uh, as long as they really want to talk about it. But my main work is in writing and in print. You can find me talking about Batman and other DC Comics goodness on Dark Knight News, reviewing multiple titles a month. 
You can find me writing about my one true love, PC and tabletop gaming on fantasticuniverses.com, our pride and joy, the host of this here podcast. And you can find me writing about Dungeons and Dragons on the Apotheosis Studios blog. For visual media, the editing handiwork that I set myself to, you can find me playing Dungeons and Dragons on No Ordinary Heroes on YouTube, and you can find me playing PC games of all varieties on The Hostile Atmosphere on YouTube. So, whatever universes you travel through, may they be fantastic until we meet. Thank you for listening. Until next time, stay golden. Bye now. Imagination outside the line, all standing, waiting. Heroes, villains, angels, Satan's. Oh my goodness gracious! Worth it to see the hotel star spaces. We made it. The date is eventually here. Into the convention. Here's three cheers! Laughing stories, panels, stalls, stands, skits Professor Elemental's on about six Of course at every con there's a couple of dicks That's not real steam, shut up, yes it is Every other person makes it better Every volunteer all holds it together Yes! You finally found your tribe Yes! Every type all here inside We're all equal, we're all worthy I don't know why they all have a go at furries If you want to dress up as a giant rabbit And have relations with a man squirrel That is none of my business Get down, crammed in the back with a hazardous drink, a swig of absinthe, I'm back from the brink. Oh. And nobody knows the rules of noises in hotel rooms. Boba oh. Fett hugging the fanatical fan, Darth Vader down with six Batmans. Parties packed, jams eclectic, fandom army all connected. All the best unique the same, all invited, join the game. All done, all the best, then cheers, I'm all broken, see you next year. Just want to swim around and live in a, live in a comic.